is on sex, although this one's sort of on like sex and relationships. Um, but I am happy to talk about this. So before we begin any further, I just want to say that like a lot of the stuff that I'm talking about today, I learned in an object relations course <laughs> that I took with uh, actually my supervisor who was like my uh, therapy supervisor, psychodynamic th- supervisor, but object relations, it's, you know, psychological theory by this woman, Melanie Klein, and it's like sort of like what couples therapy is based upon. You can look more into it yourself if you want to but one of the overarching things with object relations is the idea and the belief that I also believe it's that we need someone to let us love them not that we need someone to love us but we need someone to let us love them and that that is an inherent need that we have oh that's beautiful I know, isn't it? That's why I want to start with it, because I like it a lot. So next, I want to revisit attachment. And obviously, we have a whole episode on that. But some of the basic ideas behind attachment is that from the time that you're an infant, you develop certain beliefs. Like if you're hungry, you get fed. Uh, Ideally, you get the idea that others will be available for you. Or if you lack this, you don't. So your caretaker is your first role model for a romantic relationship and that's why when things go wrong like if your primary caregiver growing up as a child baby whatever is has for example borderline personality disorder um, you might develop an attachment style that isn't secure so typical with someone for example we'll just do that because it's a very prominent well-known example is like if you have a borderline mother you are likely to develop an anxious attachment style because you never know what you're going to get. So you're like, you know, uh, on edge and prepared for anything. So why is that? Well, let's say your mom is borderline. Generally, you will be in the parental role. Um, And what's likely to come of that is that one way that this presents is that you end up seeking someone who is a needy, person who also is borderline like your mother and this is because you can't tolerate neediness in yourself so you look for someone else who has it and it's sort of like fulfilling some sort of need Um, but you end up being unhappy and you attack them and think like why am I taking care of them so This type of thing happens in all relationships, but this is, I'm using like an unhealthy example of how it plays out. And the explanation behind this goes back to projection and projective identification, which I have discussed in the past, but I understand that these are things that need to be redefined because they're, unless you are like well into the psychoanalytic world you're probably not dealing with these things all the time although nowadays everyone on tiktok instagram whatever thinks they the whole world thinks they understand what projection is but they really don't don't even get me started so So psychological projection if we go back to freud who was i believe the first person who really defined what this was um maybe i'm wrong on that but ignore that part so Either way, it's a defense mechanism in which 
The ego defends itself against, which is just like you, defends itself against unconscious impulses or qualities, both positive and negative, by denying their existence in themselves, and they do this by attributing them to others. So an example of this would be a person who is confused, projecting their own feelings of confusion and inadequacy on other people. And projection incorporates blame shifting and can manifest as shame dumping. And so taking this further to projective identification in psychoanalysis, projective identification is a defense mechanism in which the individual projects qualities that are unacceptable to the self onto another person. And then that person internalizes the projected qualities and believes that they are characterized by them appropriately and justifiably. And going back to object relations and Melanie Klein, in her theory, projective identification is a defense mechanism in which a person fantasizes that part of their ego is split off and projected into the object in order to harm or to protect the disavowed part. That's probably a lot of jumble words that are very confusing. I'm going to need an example because, <laughs> yes, I need an example. So it's, it's, going, it's going back to... Um, the initial example I gave, your mom is borderline, you always had to take care of them, so you seek the needy borderline because you can't tolerate neediness in yourself. Now, that's one definition. That alone would follow Melanie Klein's projective identification, but the way we usually use projective identification is if that person who is the needy borderline or whatever is being told they're a certain way by their partner and whether that they are that way or that or they are not that way they believe they are that way right. and like embrace it and become it right so I, you kind maybe, of manifest that in them yes okay yes so let's give an example that's maybe not as confusing and a super normal and like it happens because this all happens in healthy relationships too. So in healthier couples, um, projection and projective identification is an opportunity for growth. So the same way that like in the initial example we gave a negative, this person can't tolerate neediness in themselves, so they look for a needy partner. But a very typical way it plays out that can be very healthy is an extrovert and an introvert ending up together, right? And here's how projection and projective identification can be positive for that. So the introvert could learn from the extrovert to be more social, and the extrovert could learn from the introvert that they need to shut the fuck up a little bit more <laughs> and hold their tongue. Like, so the way that could be is like, you know, the introvert that could play out is the introvert could you know, want to stay inside for the fourth weekend in a row and the extrovert could be like, you know, like you always want to stay inside, blah, 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 say some things about them that are probably true and that might be negative or whatever, but just like a touch negative and force the introvert to go out and like socialize a little bit and that ends up becoming a positive experience for them or whatever. Is that like a compromise? Then, or like a balance? Not even like... Maybe it starts by compromise, but it but it ends up just you sort of change who you are. You take on a little bit of the other person, right? So this is this is we're talking about it being healthy. So when it's healthy, it it plays out like this. Um, 
or like <laughs> the example of the extra shirt extrovert shutting the fuck up um (laughs) (laughs) so anyways ideally in a healthy couple you both will take on aspects of the other person that you could benefit from and it will end up making you be your best self so another example of this is a man could have difficulty expressing his feelings So he is attracted to a woman who does this on his behalf. So that's healthy, right? But he could end up disliking it and becoming critical of her, and that would be like a negative way this could play out. So in couples, pointing out the differences between you should come from a good place. Both should be open to being different, shouldn't attack the other person, uh, because that's not conducive to growth, but maybe just pointing out ways you guys could be better or whatever um definitely shouldn't come from an attacking place and ideally this will result in optimal integration which is you know a term for just sort of being like the best version of yourself but this can also happen like when you're single or it can happen in a relationship that ends or like as the result of a bad relationship, optimally integrated just means that you're like the best version of yourself. So the more optimally integrated you are, the more optimally integrated partner you will pick. It won't be conscious, it will just happen. Like if you are healthier mentally, you are gonna be attracted to other people who are healthier mentally. And by definition, you will always sort of be on the same level as the person you're with. Because if you weren't on the same level, then you would leave them. So by definition, that's how it is. Um, And that's why teenage marriages have the least chance of success. Obviously, no one is optimally integrated as a teenager. And so like some people can get lucky, you know, marry someone at age 19, and you become optimally integrated together Together. yeah and it's beautiful but that's obviously so rare the vast a lot of people are never going to be optimally integrated number one and number two of the people who are they usually don't really reach that until like late 20s earliest right so i don't think that's why i don't think i'm (laughs) integrated at all it's like a self-actualization like you're learning about yourself and you know yeah it's like a spectrum. You could never be f- fully optimally integrated. I feel like if you think you are, you might not be. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, I do think that, you know, it's like a curve, right? And the more optimally integrated an individual can be, they're still going to, you know, have gotten a lot closer to that in the earlier decades of their life than the growth you're going to do in the later decades i see so it's, it's like just front sort heavy. of like science you gotcha. know yeah the, the yeah. development if you're of not, the frontal cortex you know if you're if you're a complete idiot at age 40 good luck you're 40 but <laughs> <laughs> if you're you know what psychologically is considered optimally integrated by then that's a good thing so um So something else to point out, the more trauma you have, the more difficult it will be for you to be optimally integrated, Uh, which just makes sense, you know, uh, 
trauma can really hold people back and it can, uh, you know, impact you very negatively and keep you from being your best self. So then what happens when a couple, for example, seeks therapy? Well, something to think about when we're thinking about the optimal integration is that if one of them becomes more optimally integrated and the other person doesn't, that one who becomes more integrated might no longer be right for the partner that they began the therapy with. Mm-hmm. But that might be too distressing to them. So they might actually avoid developing optimal integration for this purpose and drop out of therapy to, quote, save their relationship. And do they do this on a conscious level? A conscious level? Um, you know, I, I don't think it's fully conscious. Oh, wow. You know, I think, I think they'll, their defense mechanisms will come into play and give them a different reason, but they'll just know that their relationship is worsening and they'll at least be aware of that. And they won't be aware that it's maybe because they're getting better, they'll be like, oh, the therapist sucks, you know. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Yeah. So um, another way this unfortunately plays out is that a lot of older women come into couples therapy. Um, You know, they've been inspired by the progression in feminism that's happened over the decades. They're like, yeah, I'm not... I." You know, they realize that they don't want to put up with a lot of maybe the misogynistic behaviors their partner has, but because they grew up in a different time, they often rely on the man for financial purposes, and they're very likely to be the type that drops out, right, to save the relationship. So on that type of situation, it might be more aware, right? Like, oh realizing that he's he's not getting better but needing that support yeah and they're getting more maybe disgruntled because they're more aware of things um but they have no way to take care of themselves so that's that and then a thing you see in younger couples who go to couples therapy is they have very low tolerance so what's more likely to happen with Younger couples is they'll just say, like, I'm done. Like, I don't want to put on the work on this and just leave maybe too soon because they have. And obviously, this is there's so many exceptions. Right. But there it is generational. Um, I think that a lot of people have the idea that the other partner should do everything for them or the other partner needs to be the one who changes. Um, You know, so then they're going to go to couples therapy. They're going to be like, this is too much work the other person's the issue, let's break up type of thing. Okay, so moving on, let's talk about sexual disorders from a psychiatric perspective. So they weren't classified until about 1970, and this is when Masters and Johnson published a book called Human Sexual Inadequacy Based Upon Their Years of Research. Um, they were a research team, pretty famous, started researching, I think, around like 1960. There's actually a show a few years back called Masters of Sex that was made about them. And I remember watching that. Maybe I was in college or something. It was interesting. So what's the first sexual disorder we want to talk about? 
hypoactive sexual desire disorder. So this is the most difficult to treat, but it's also very frequently reported in women. One third of women actually meet criteria for hypoactive sexual desire disorder at some point in their life. And one seventh of men. So clearly pretty common. Question. And yeah. Sorry. Um, is, do you have to be, is this like exclusive of people like not on SSRIs? Like, is this completely substance naive diagnosis? Well, no, I, I mean, I wouldn't, I don't, I imagine they diagnose it in anyone. But like, I don't think they're going to like, if you're on SSRIs and they think that that's the reason why you may have a deep, like, cause we talked about it in our last, last episode. Yeah. I mean, I don't think they're, I don't think they're, you know, uh, it's not exclu- an exclusion criteria. I don't think they're exclude. I mean, I didn't look into it. This is psychological stuff. So it's not heavy on like the methods and the research, but I would imagine they're not excluding, um, yeah. Because then it's like iatrogenic. It's like there's a reason. Yeah, but either way, the whole point of when we talk about it from a psychological perspective is sure, the numbers might com- might be influenced by something I see. else, but how we're, when we talk about approaching it, we're assuming that there's not like... That it's organic. That it's organic. Okay, yes. Gotcha. So with these individuals who have hypoactive sexual desire disorder, without intervention, divorce is the likely outcome if this this presents in the first three years of marriage. So something to think about is that usually when these individuals come to sex therapy specifically, they come in due to pressure from their partner. Typically, the one who lacks desire, they'll say, I'd be fine without ever having sex again. And like a common way they present in therapy is they'll say something like, everything is perfect in our marriage, except we have not had sex in 10 years. And if you're a sex therapist, you don't think a marriage is perfect if you haven't had sex in 10 years. Like maybe you're perfect at being BFFs, but (laughs) clearly there's integration issues so this also like a good time to bring up like is asexuality like a valid thing or is it a disorder or is it something deeper from a psychological perspective you know or really just from a medical perspective or a psychiatric perspective you know there could be some biological factors that could contribute to asexuality but um you know I believe and the prevalent belief out there is that, you know, the main reason someone would identify as asexuals if there's something happened that caused their sexuality not to develop as appropriate as normal when they were a teenager and that someone who's identifying as asexual, um, if there were different circumstances, perhaps they would not identify that way. So, and that being said, you know, that's a good sex life has a really positive impact on life in many ways. It results in longer life mm-hmm. even, um, you know, so biologically having a quote normal sex drive is a good thing. 
So if you're a sex therapist, the first thing you do with, um, you know, a patient or a couple that presents to you is you first you take a good history. So do you have any sexual thoughts? Do you have any interest in physical arousal? Has this been going on for your entire life or is this situational? You know, and obviously the situational ends up in some ways being a lot more obvious as to the root cause versus um, lifelong. So then how do we quantify abnormally low sex relationships? So infrequent, which is the first category below normal, that is when a couple has sex less than two times a month. And 20% of the population qualifies as this. And then what qualifies as no sex marriages is less than 10 times a year. And this is 15% of the population. So I'm sure people listening were like, oh God, am I normal or not? And as long as you have sex every other week, you are normal. <laughs> Meet the quota. So, yeah, you uh, you don't you don't need to get help. Okay. So, when men have you know the hypoactive sexual desire disorder or meet the criteria for that, when they report this type of issue, it tends to be more entrenched. So, typically, it'll follow something like. The man has erectile dysfunction and then he loses desire. Or, so it's very psychological. Men often worry about the stereotype about always being ready for sex. Um, for a woman, some considerations is that, you know, if they just had a baby, it could be normal for their sex drive to decrease. Or for women, during times of high stress, it really tends to impact their sex drive and cause it to decrease. And that's evolutionary. And, yes. Can't have yes. you can't have a baby, you can't stop and have sex if you're under siege and you have to run from a predator. Yes, exactly. Exactly. But for a guy it doesn't really matter. <laughs> <laughs> so the progression of sex. So it's more of a linear progression for men. There's desire arousal, and then orgasm. For women, it's a little more out of order. Um, desire is often caused with positive anticipation. So if they're having negative emotions, they can't have that first part that occurs. Um, and then so like with men, they can get the performance anxiety. It becomes a pass-fail test rather than an opportunity to share pleasure. So something else that's interesting and needs to be considered is that women are very judgmental about their own bodies. Yep. Men, on the other hand, are less judgmental about their own bodies as well as their partners. That's good. So, yeah. So hopefully that can make women feel better about themselves. And then there's also cultural factors that cause pressure. So women not not being supposed to be sexual, hello, purity culture, and then a ton of pressure for men to be highly sexual, um, you know, porn culture, especially uh, when millennials were teenagers and stuff like that. Yeah, and those commercials, it. like with the low testosterone, like they make it sound like you should be 
if you're not exercising, you should be having sex or have all this energy when really some of those feelings could be normal and they're just trying to sell tea pills. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And then part of this too is that women are likely to link emotions with desire. They need to feel emotionally connected before they want sex. And men are more likely to want sex for the sake of sex. And this probably isn't biological. It's probably just due to cultural factors. Women definitely learn sex in the context of relationships culturally where men, it is not taught to them that way. And so, you know, these things, even if you reject what culture tells you, it what you were what was ingrained in you growing up still affects you on some level. And this is how it plays out. Another thing to think about is that qualities that promote relationships can stifle sexuality. So women often promote solid relationship qualities. And these relationship qualities that are so great can also result in like making them feel less desired. And then part of this is that as women evolve with often more responsibilities than men, which like, for example, a lot of women now, they work full time and they are the main, like they have, if you have children, they are the main caretakers of children. A lot of them do, um, you know, over half of like the housework and still once again work the same as the men. Yeah, we've talked about that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. So anyways... With all that going on, if you think about it, that woman is probably like resentful towards the dude and (laughs) sex can secondarily lose sex sort of needs like a forbidden erotic quality for it to maintain being good. And if it loses all that, um, you know, it's not going to be that great. And a lot of and that same thing, like solid relationship qualities can sometimes do the same thing, help make uh, sex lose that forbidden erotic quality and then people use sex for different reasons so some people are using it to calm their anxiety some people are using sex to feel loved and cared about some people are using sex to medicate themselves and yeah so all different reasons and then if we look at lower sex couples the lack of sex that they have in their relationship can lower affection And that can sometimes put pressure on the individual in a relationship. So sometimes a person in that couple will worry that showing affection must lead to sex. So maybe this person, you know, they have like, they really do have like a hypoactive sex drive. And they are they get afraid of even showing any affection in their relationship because they're afraid it's going to lead to lead to sex and they don't want sex um but you know what we know is that a strong emotional connection and a strong sexual connection are totally related um and they both serve to reduce tensions and stressors in the relationship really need both of them And something else is that really healthy sexuality involves some healthy aggression because if you think about it, like penetration is a pretty aggressive act. So 
to be the penetrator or to be penetrated, you have to be accepting of healthy aggression existing. So you must have healthy aggression. You must be able to tolerate aggression in yourself and in another to have a healthy sex life. Hmm. And then, um, so you know, I know in the last episode, Allie wanted me <laughs> to weigh in on polyamory. And I'm going to just touch on it again. Like from the object relations standpoint, you know, people who are frequently or maybe I should say only engaging in like one night stands and, you know, frequently having sex with tons of different people or like only capable of polyamory because, you know, periods of various things don't really mean too much. Um, But if that's, you know, the only thing you can tolerate, the idea is that that individual is not able to integrate attachment into their, you know, sexual relationships because really romance and sex are ideally integrated in a, like, optimally integrated relationship or a secure attachment or whatever we're talking about. So, yeah, that's most of what I have. That's the whole breakdown of object relations. That's really cool. So my question, object meaning, like, object of desire, like... Yes. Okay. Yeah, that would be a good way to put it. Okay. Because I, I don't know. I was thinking of it very abstractly for a little bit, and I'm like, wait a second. <laughs> well, like, if you really go into all the psychoanalytic stuff, they have, like, uh, transitional objects. Like, your first object is, like, your mom, and then, like, your transitional oh. object is, like, the stuffed animal you're obsessed with. And so, you know, it's I, I could go down that whole rabbit hole, but I'm, like, I'm, like, a loosely... Like, I definitely like a lot of the psychoanalytic stuff for sure, for sure. But I'm not like, um, you know, I mean, there's some people who are just super intense about it and they use all these crazy terms. But I just I just like the theories because I think they have a lot of validity and I like like, you know, taking the good things from it. Yeah, I, I definitely a lot of it. I was kind of thinking of examples in my own life of couples like, you know, grandparents or friends or or things like that, that I've, you know, I'm like, oh, that's definitely them. They're definitely that couple, like, you know, and and successful examples and some not successful examples. But um, I thought that was interesting. But my, what do you think about how they define how they, you know, it's, is this very like heterosexual oriented or, I know, and using- you know, I think it it's just uh, there's not a lot of sex research. And I think so, like I've said, like we said at the beginning of our first sex episode we ever did, you know, this is going to be based on heterosexuals because unfortunately there's just like not a lot of information. And I think it would be potentially quite different for when you look at like, you know, gay couples, lesbian couples things like that. You know, some a lot of these things are still going to play out. Yeah. But it's going to be a little different than it is for like you know, a stereotypical like heterosexual couple. A lot of it was looking back on everything you said, it was one person in the couple is this and the other person in the couple is this versus 
you know, some of the particulars that related to heterosexual couples were more cultural constraints and historical. Yeah. You know, and the, and the thing is like, that's why like, you know, whether you're a straight couple, a gay couple, lesbian couple, there's often going to be like the extrovert, the introvert, or like the person who's not good at expressing their emotions and the one who is yin and yang. And like those, yeah, those things are still going to play out either in a healthy way or an unhealthy way. Um, you know, but as far as like the cultural things, obviously that's very related to, you know, and there's other cultural things that affect gay couples, lesbian couples, whatever. They have their own culture, which has positive and negative stuff. Um, but yeah, so yeah. And some, you know, obviously some stuff is, is biological. Like for example, a woman having a lower sex drive after she has a baby or like a woman, like you, like we talked about a woman having a lower, um, sex drive when she's very stressed out like there's biological purpose to that so okay well thank Thank you for for this this consult. consult